This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody, wherever you are. This is Trevor. Gently, Paul. Paul, how are you doing today? I'm feeling very, yeah, very gentle, very quiet. It's, you know, daylight savings time, so it's feeling a little early, so I will have a gentle start <laughs> to the day. You haven't recovered yet after almost a week? Um, you know, we were on vacation when it happened, so I don't know if that helps or hurts, but I, th- I feel like I'm still getting my sea legs under me here. Ugh, I hate it. I know. Well, listeners, we are absolutely uh, honored and delighted to be joined by a guest today, Mr. Ron Restrepo. Ron, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. I was, I was thinking as I was driving in that it's uh, my Christmas morning for me, getting a chance to talk to you folks uh, about my favorite topic, translated fiction. So I'm doing quite well. Well, it, the, the feeling is mutual. We've been looking forward to both this episode and to having a chance to sit down with you for a long time. Yeah. And I'm just glad that it's here. It'll be over soon. Dang it. <laughs> All too soon. <laughs> just like Christmas, it's over. That's the right. anticipation. <laughs> no. no, we're so happy to have you on. We've, As Trevor said, we've been wanting to have you on for a long time, and it seems like a, a great day and a great topic. So looking I forward agree. to it. Thank you. Well, Ron, where did your interest in translated literature come from? Do you want to give us just a little bit of of background? Yeah, I'd be happy to. It's um, so I'm uh, I have a few years on you. So in my freshman year in college, uh, 1969, I was taking a lot of courses in uh, uh, Latin American politics and sociology. And in one of my classes, um, the professor said, "If you want to understand." the Latin mind, read 100 Years of Solitude. So I read it then at 69, and then that was the the boom years, you know, for all the boom authors in Latin American uh, fiction. Uh, and so I, over the next five, 10 years, uh, read just about everything there. Uh, and the wonderful thing recently, so that was the core, the wonderful thing recently is there's so many independent publishers were here to celebrate one of them who uh, have just reached around the world to, to uh, get incredible authors and incredible translators. And so I've just really continued to this day. And so and really predominantly what I read, probably 60, 70 percent of what I read is translated fiction. So it's my escape. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I was going to say, I bet you when you started compared to now, the options available in the translated fiction world have just exploded since then. I can't imagine that there was, you know, tons and tons of options at that point. No, there were really few. Uh, and it as the publishers. Penguin had some. And uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so just the, the 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 breadth and the options now are just uh, I mean, I, I'm incredibly excited that it continues to expand each year. Ron, we were really glad when you sent in your uh, kind of book of 2022. It was uh, Mircea Cartorescu's Solenoid. Do you remember that book still? Has it, has it made an impression? I still remember. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate your referencing it periodically. Uh, no, it was, uh, it was, it's, you know, and I was thinking about what interests me in these books, sort of what are the, the checkoffs. Uh, and it's really, I mean, obviously solid writing. Um, but the other things that I, I really look for are books that give uh, a sense of place and history. Um, and really, if you will, the author's philosophical insights. 
And so those are the three things that, that I really enjoy. And that, uh, that one hit like all the, all the boxes. Uh, and, uh, because it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, somebody who grew up in, in the times when the when communist government was in place. And so, and I'm always interested to see how different people react to that. Some people get very politically involved and right through the direct politics of it. Um, and others of it do something else. And what Carterescu does, which is fascinating, is just total flights of the imagination. Uh, he'll start with a sort of everyday event and then all of a sudden through dreams, through just thoughts, uh, you're in another world. Uh, and so uh, that's where I just really enjoyed it. Yeah. I keep harping about it, so I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> well, one of these days you're actually going to get us to read it, and it's not for lack of interest that I'm not reading you know. it. But I, I know we mentioned Chris Villa all the time on here, but he just posted something the other day on Instagram that said it was, if I'm not mistaken, it said it was one of the best books he's ever read, period. Which yeah, is- and it's, you know, one thing I, that will encourage you, and then before we get on to the, the, the press we're here to celebrate, but each chapter is can really be read separately. So you can come in and out of it somewhat. I mean, I read straight through it, but each one is sort of discreet because it all he always sets it up with some sort of daily event, and then, as I said, flights off on the uh, flies off on you know the solenoids searching for the solenoids in the city, and he's good with uh, recurring themes in each chapter. So you can really uh, dive in and take it sort of in segments if if you choose to do that. Nice. Yeah, so Chris Villa put up his video yesterday, and he starts it by saying, this is the best 21st century book I've read. So wow. big, big praise. And I think it's okay, right? We're, we're here to celebrate today, open letter. Um, I think it's safe to say without open letter, there would have been no deep vellum. They have a history. It's like a you know, father-son <laughs> kind of relationship between the two presses. Uh, we won't get into into that necessarily, but um, thank goodness for, for all of that. And yeah, I keep on, I, I keep on sitting there looking at my copy of Solenoid and <laughs> wanting to, to, to jump in, but I would I like to, quite uh, Trevor, cause you made a good point and I, I, I'd like to follow up with it cause it's the, the wonderful thing about some of these independent presses is the passion of the, the publishers who, mm-hmm. who the folks who are running them. And part of it, you get to see the, the, sort of, if you will, the intergenerational uh, pass the baton or expand. I mean, one of the reasons I think we have so many good independent presses is, you know, I mean, it starts uh, in large degree with, you know, John O'Brien at Dalkey and then, you know, Chad Post, who will be talking about sort of, you know, received some of the baton or passed it on. And I've talked to Will Evans at Deep Bellum and, you know, when he was interested in becoming a publisher First thing he did was visited Chad and said, how do you do it? And he said, follow me around for six months. Um, and so just that that mentorship. Uh, so you're exactly right. But for, you know, Chad Post at Open Letter, there would not be uh, Will Evans at Develop necessarily. So it's just that's that's the wonderful thing uh, about it. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons you see, you know, some of these uh, very passionate publishers doing amazing things with independent uh, publishing houses. And it has such a close knit feeling too. I mean, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but it does have like a family feel at times. And 
anybody who shows interest and reaches out, I've just had such great experiences with all of these people that we're talking about. It's just such an such a wonderful community to be a little part of, you know. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the video of uh, Chad and Will as they were going through the Dalkey archives, mm-hmm. but yeah, that's family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. Even and with they, some of the warts and everything else that comes along with it. Yeah, yep. exactly. And the inheritance, because now you know yeah, Dalkey and Deep Vellum and you know Open Letter are all kind of joined at the hip again. Mm-hmm. Um, they had their period of kind of branching out, I guess, independently, and and not that they're not independent still, but. Uh, coming back to uh, continue to curate and bring us back old dark Dalky archive books and and uh, continue publishing new ones. It's it's fantastic, and they have I such agree. such great taste and such. Um, you know, we'll get into that. I assume when we're when we're talking about our our favorite books from Open Letter here in a little bit. Um, the the kind of outline today, we'll talk a little bit about the you know our own history with Open Letter books, what we think of when we think of them. We'll get into. Uh, I think each, each of us have brought three books to to just you know touch on, as well as a couple of books that we haven't read yet from Open Letter that we want to read. And listeners, if if you've been listening to these publisher episodes, uh, you know we started with New Directions, we did one on Archipelago, and and or sorry, we we started with NYRB Classics, <laughs> and then went to Archipelago, and then New Directions. And in each of those, we had some really fantastic giveaways, and today is the same. So later on in the episode, we will introduce the giveaway, including what you need to do in order to win, um, you know, a treasure chest of books uh, from Open Letter. We'll get there in a minute, but we do have a giveaway from last uh, episode that we need to take care of uh, first. Uh, People might remember that we uh, have a copy of... Anton Shamus's uh, Arabesques, just published in a new edition by NYRB Classics. And I want to make sure that we give that away. So, Paul, I will uh, do the honors this time since I don't sure. have it on my phone to hold up and have you squint at, yeah, you know, squint. as I usually do. Uh, I just did the random number generator. And I am so excited here. Our winner today is Bonnie Renzi. Bonnie, congratulations. You have been uh, a listener uh, for as long as I can remember, and you correspond yeah. with us. And I think you've entered every giveaway, and I don't think you've won one yet. So that's exciting. <laughs> that is exciting. Congratulations, that's Bonnie. Great. Well-deserved. I will let Bonnie know, but uh, Bonnie, I will get you this copy of uh, Arabesques in the mail so that you can have it ASAP. Um, all right. And by the way, Bonnie, that does not prohibit you from joining the open letter giveaway. <laughs> Just no. so you know, <laughs> it's an important note. Yes, right. Indeed. We don't want you to feel like, oh man, I did I just did I just use my opportunity? <laughs> um, you can have all the riches if you if you win. <laughs> all right. Oh, before we start in with open letter, I do have one other thing I want to ask both of you, and that is, uh, what have you been reading? Uh, why don't we go ahead and start with you, Ron, if you don't mind? Not at all. I, uh, as I uh, mentioned, getting ready for this, I just finished off uh, Body Loche uh, by Andres uh, Newman. Robin Myers was the translator, who's one of my absolute all-time tra- favorite translators. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, it's a great, uh, for those people interested in it, it it's, it's, there's a great linkage talking about the vellum uh, with Trash, by Sylvia Aguilar Zelani, 
translated by J.D. Pluker, because they're both about trash. Hmm. Uh, and so that's a great linkage. Um, and I just finished up the short stories for uh, uh, Fernanda Melkor's This Is Not Miami. Sophie Hughes, again, that team that keeps coming out with amazing stuff. Um, and Charco, uh, Two Sherpas, uh, Sebastian Martinez, Danielle, translated by Jennifer Croft, uh, another of my favorite translators. So that's that's it. I've, I also fit in... Uh, I mean, I, I, you can see I circulate out with the with the publishers that do translated fiction. So, and talking about Archipelago, I've I've read two that I was introduced by another Twitter friend to uh, Magdalena Tuli, uh, Polish writer uh, who both books translated by Bill Johnston, uh, Moving Parts and Flaw F L A W. So that's that's taken me around the world, and it's uh, one each from my uh, favorite publishing houses. <laughs> That was excellent. Yeah you, yeah, you hit them all. That's very impressive. Paul, did did you notice something? Did you notice something there that I might have? Yeah, I don't know if it counts in bingo if Ron says archipelago. I think it has to be me. I know. I the bingo thing. <laughs> I was going to ask. Maybe we could do a vote, and you know, since we've got three people on here on how to do it correctly. <laughs> unless uh, unless Trevor's been converted, I might be losing that vote. In this case, <laughs> I, I feel I feel like I I feel like I was converted. Now I'm not so sure anymore. I guess I wasn't <laughs> completely in the fold yet. No, yeah. <laughs> might have a mutiny on our hands here. I just appreciate yeah. solidarity. You know, That's I, right. I just I just appreciate it. All right, Paul, what are you reading? Yeah, well, I'll talk about several of the books that I have been reading later in the episode because I've been doing a little open letter um, reading, but. I'm going to mostly focus on one that I actually did an audiobook with recently. So my wife and I, I referred to it earlier, we drove down to Santa Fe last weekend. So it's about a six hour drive. And we had one of those magical audiobook road trip experiences where it was actually a reread for me, but it was Kent Harriff's uh, book, Plain Song. Oh. Either one of you have read that. Yeah. Um, I've referred to Harriff before his book. I think it was during our um, books about getting older or books about aging episode, Our Souls at Night, which is another great book that he wrote. Um, this is a similar one, Plain Song. In some ways, it it has a lot of the same feelings. It's, he's a very quiet writer in many ways, and we've talked about quiet lives. That's definitely kind of an area that he focuses on. Um, this particular one is set in a small fictional town that happens to be in northern Colorado, and it just kind of follows the lives of a small group of, of people who live there. There's a teenage girl, there's a father and his two young boys. There's a pair of older brothers who've lived and ranched together for decades out on this uh, ranch outside of town. Um, so even though it is very quiet, there's a lot going on at the same time. I mean, he doesn't discount any of these lives. There's big events happening. Um, I won't touch on too many of them, but um, all of his books that I've read so far, there's a lot of tenderness and kindness, which I really like, but it's not saccharine in any way. It's he doesn't shy away from the fact that these are damaged people that have complicated lives, lots of troubles. There's, you know, people coming into their lives and disrupting them and things like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was just a wonderful experience listening to that. We finished it up kind of on the air on the way to the airport to go pick up, pick up our two sons who had been in Florida. So we, we were down to the wire, but we did manage to, to finish the entire book, you know, over the course of the weekend. And it was a great way to experience it. So there's a couple more. It's, considered a trilogy. I don't know how much connection there is, but there's another book called Eventide and then a third book called Benediction that I would like to get to soon in this, in this trilogy. But yeah, it was, it was wonderful. 
I don't know if either yeah, one of Paul, you have just read it. One comment because yeah. I, I really like him as a writer. And mm-hmm. I was just thinking when you talked about broken people, I mean, part of it is how broken people become stronger, sort of meeting up with complimentary broken people. <laughs> yeah. It's a great point. And that's one of my favorite things in particular. There's a lot of wonderful relationships in this book, but in particular, the young teenage girl, which I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that she's um, pregnant, unwed and pregnant in, in high school and her relationship with several of the characters, but in particular, the pair of older brothers who are the ranchers is just absolutely beautiful. It's one of my you know favorite relationships that I've come across in literature. And as my wife and I were driving down the road, listening to it, we would just like pause the pause the audiobook and, and talk about it a little bit because it's just like I said it's not saccharine but it's very sweet and pure in a lot of ways too so yeah that's a great point the way they come together and they each bring something that helps complement the other one is, is it's really beautiful hmm. excellent yeah all right about you, Carter, what you been up to <laughs> <laughs> last night I finished book two in uh, Konstantin uh, Postovsky's The Story of a Life that was published by uh, NYRB Classics, uh, you know, in January, I think is what when it was. Um, that's 69 chapters in, about 570 pages. I've been taking it very slow. I read one chapter a day, sometimes a couple, you know, depending on, on the day. I did read a couple yesterday because I was like, oh, I'm almost done with book two. I better, better get through <laughs> it. And I'll tell you guys, I am just loving that book. I'm loving the way that I'm doing it. Sometimes um, reading it a, a little bit a day doesn't work very well for me, but it's it, it's the exact ticket for this book. I just feel like I'm, you know, remembering my own memories. It just has that sense of of place, of smell, of touch, of you know, momentary delight and and sadness and loneliness. Uh, there have been plenty of times that the book has made me start to feel a little emotional, which is just really weird to me, especially when I'm like, you know, I don't know Konstantin Poskovsky at all. I didn't, I've never read his books. I have no connection with him. I certainly don't have connection with the kind of random characters that he is interacting with that make me feel emotional. There's just so much humanity and empathy in his book that it's it's powerful. I I love it. So I start part three of that today, and I'm very excited. Uh, on the on the lighter side, I also started earlier this week. Uh, Richard Osman's The Thursday Murder Club. Oh, nice. <laughs> Have either of you guys read those? Or no, that I him. Okay, that is funny and fun. And he's quite the character. I see him on Twitter interacting with John Self. Uh, there's another bingo uh, thing for <laughs> folks out there. And they just have a good banter that I've always thought, okay, I, I do want to read this. And then my wife read it and enjoyed it so much and has recommended it to other people in the family. And they've all been really enjoying it. So uh, I'll, I'll give my endorsement too. Having having not finished it yet, I'll still say, I think this is this is just a, a fun time. Really, really witty very well put together, uh, delightful characters, you know, talk about something that I think is going to be a comfort read. And he's got three out in the series and book four comes out, I think in September. So I don't know if this is going to turn into one of those 20 book, uh, long (laughs) (laughs) mystery series kind of things. But, uh, if so time to get in on it folks. And, uh, but I think starting with the the first one and just enjoying it is, has been, been really cool. Nice. So that's a little bit about me. I've got I've got some other things going on 
that, uh, you know, I'll save for, for a future episode because I think they'll continue to go on. But, all right. So, here we are uh, to talk about another publisher, Open Letter Books. Um, Open Letter Books, I remember when they when they started, at least when they started publishing books, because it's about the time I started the Mooks and the Gripes uh, website. Um, they they uh, published their first title in September of 2008, and it happened to be Dubrovka Ugreshik's Nobody's Home. And they've been going strong ever since. I think that they publish about 10 titles every year. Um, I think every one of them has been a book in translation, except for maybe some essays that are about translation, you know, things like that. But I could be wrong in general there, but I think that it's safe to say that's the general rule. And they've been going strong ever since then. Um, Open Letter Books is a part of the University of Rochester. And it, it kind of began when they were talking about a translation program for undergraduate and graduate students and wondering about how to go along. And they thought, well, let's let's get some hands-on experience and do some publishing ourselves. And they got everything put together, including the 3% website, uh, 3% being that potentially not true, but at least, uh, you know, it, it, it makes a statement number of, of all the books that we get every year in, in, in English, only 3% of them are books in translation. And then, publishing Nobody's Home in September of 2008. And I, like I say, I remember when their books started coming out, they had the, they, they were uh, those little hardbacks uh, with not, without dust covers. They were just, you know, those hardbacks that had the image po- uh, posted right onto the, the cardboard of the, of the, or whatever material it was. <laughs> and um, I really enjoyed that, but then they, they eventually uh, flipped over to, uh, these these paperbacks uh, often with the um, you know just great covers and uh, mm-hmm. they're they're pretty striking books to to see there. Um, any thoughts on open letter books from you two in terms of your your coming upon them and uh, and getting to know them? And we'll talk a little bit more about Dubrovka Ugreshik here in just a moment because um, we we got the very sad news that she died yesterday. Uh, but you know, let, we'll get into that in just a moment. Ron, do you want to go? Sure. Um, I think the first time, uh, uh, that I really recall focusing on it, um, because, and, and it was probably about the same time that I started thinking about, because when I look for books, uh, there's various criteria, whether, and whether it's the author, translator, whatever, but a lot of it comes down to the publishing house. And so the first time that i recall really focusing on open letter was, uh, uh, Rodrigo Frazan's first book, um, because he came to Houston for a reading and he is one of the more incredible people to talk to. Um, and anyway, and so I, I, that got me, uh, so I, I read that his the first book and I've read everyone, uh, since then, uh, except for the, the final one. And that really got me into it. Uh, and then I started looking for, for, you know, other books. And there's one of the things that I really like about them, uh, including with uh, the author you were talking about, is they 
they really support particular authors. So, um, like, you know, some of the ones that I'll be talking about, the, the, there's, if you like that author, you're going to, if that author has been translated, you're going to have the opportunity to read other books by that author. Uh, and so just, I've gotten involved, you know, reading more of them just because I get interested in a, uh, particular author and they're, they're available. Uh, and one other thing we always talk about, uh, on Twitter and elsewhere, they've always, as far as, as long as I can remember, they've always had the translators names on the cover, mm-hmm. um, with the twist that's in Spanish, it's always says translated from the Spanish by, mm-hmm. uh, and so, uh, so that's, and you know, it's, it's easy. Like some of the other publishers we've talked about, you can look at the cover and you could say, yep, I know where that's from. <laughs> Right. Uh, just that look uh, of the covers. Um, and uh, they really promote translators. So I've, I've heard a lot of interviews. Uh, I mean, Katie Whittemore is on the TMR show all the time. And then that whole concept with uh, Translator Triptych, you know, where she picked uh, three books, which I, I think they're going to resume. Um, so they just really promote translators. So once I found out about them, uh, you know, I've been all over it. But that, that was my, the first time that I could really remember focusing on it. Yeah, no, that's great. I was trying to figure out exactly how I was first introduced to them or what I, my first memories. And I think at least what I remember is that I stumbled onto them through their two wonderful podcasts that they've done over the years, which one of them is the 3% podcast with Chad Post and Tom Robert. And then you just referred to it, um, Ron, the two-month review podcast. So I saw recently that the 3, 3% podcast, I think might be kind of, reaching the end of at least its current iteration. I think they're deciding what to do with it next. But last I checked, there was a big backlog of those. Um, if anybody's interested in going and exploring, it's it's a great podcast where they talk about, of course, translated fiction, but also, you know, the good and bad of publishing. They talk about baseball, you know, everything. It, it all comes up during that. And I've enjoyed that over the years. I've listened to it for, I don't even know. I mean, maybe close to a decade. I don't know. Um, and then the two month review is just an absolute treasure trove. Um, again, I found that there are a lot, there's a big backlist. So anybody who's interested, you can go back and, and basically the concept of that is they take eight or nine episodes to just focus in usually on one specific book. Um, I think Chad usually describes them as, as big, you know, messy, exciting books. And, and so they've done quite a few of their own books, but they've also branched out and done other books from other publishers as well. And that's usually what the co-host Brian Wood, sometimes Kaya. Uh, Stromanus joins them and then assorted other guests, including, you know, translators and students there at the university and other things like that. So that is definitely where I, at least if I wasn't introduced to them there, that's where I feel like I kind of got to know them and learn more and explore some of these books alongside them. So yeah, it's been wonderful. And then since then I've been, you know, a long time subscriber and, um, you know, very loyal reader ever since. I really like the point you brought up Ron about their loyalty to authors, to translators. It goes back to what we were talking about with this this family feel. And when you find something that's really valuable, you make sure that you help champion it. And I think Chad and the rest of them have done a, a wonderful job of that, so. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm wondering, Paul, so wh- the first place I saw their books was actually on Stuart McCabney's website. Um, mm. He had he got a a copy of Rupert a Confession, one of their first books, came out in June of 2009, and uh, wrote about it. And I think that may have been the first time that I saw or kind of realized, oh, there's this publisher 
and at the time I was living in South Orange, New Jersey, and I thought, oh, they're not very far away either. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know? <laughs> uh, and just in, enjoyed getting to know them through that. But it was shortly around that time too um, that I realized there's this thing called the Best Translated Book Award mm-hmm. that Chad Post will, will would put on at the time. And I, I remember getting excited about uh, the 2010 list, which uh, had uh, the winner it was Gail Haraven's uh, The Confessions of Noah Weber, uh, translated by Dahlia Bilou from Hebrew, and then getting excited for 2011, 2012. Like I can, I can almost mark my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> by these lists of books on the best translated book award and sadly that there hasn't been an idea as to how to go forward with that uh since 2020 uh so i don't know exactly what will happen uh with the best translated book award there there are plenty of other translated book awards that have come into existence since the best translated book award started um and so it's a little bit i think difficult to to figure out, okay, they, they're kind of doing what we're, what we've done. What's the best way to, to do this. Uh, okay. but just, just great. Another great resource every year of 25 books on the long list, many of which I wouldn't have discovered in any other way, uh, yeah. highlighting, uh, other little presses that are putting out one or two books a year. Uh, it's, it's just, you know, this, this really is one of my biggest, uh, founts of, of information and of uh, resources on translated books is open letter. And there are many things that they have their hands in to support yeah. the, uh, that part of the literary industry. Yeah, sure. And I think that you raised exactly the right point. Cause I mean, I used to, that was like my uh, check out the list and be sure to uh, read books on the list. And they were the first out there on awards for international or for, for international translated fiction. And then uh, I guess others saw opportunity or whatever, and it became a crowded field, you know, and I think if you've got a limited number of staff and resources, then you think, okay, if somebody else is doing it and doing a good job, then I'll, I'll refocus my efforts to do something else to promote translated fiction. Cause thankfully there are a bunch of others, including, you know, the uh, international booker, which was not around until recently. So, uh, so I think that may be one of the reasons for it. Yeah. I remember when going back to their podcast on the 3% podcast, I know that they would sometimes go through that entire list and they'd be talking about the long list and Chad and the rest of them would kind of be t- touching on the different books. And I would just be furiously scribbling down. Yeah. Jotting, you know, it's like, Oh, there goes the budget for this month. Yeah, kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. like you said, I mean, anybody, I'm sure those lists are still out there. If there's anybody who's not familiar or who would like to dig back, I mean, they may not all still be available. Um, but that would be a book great wise, resource book wise. Yeah. That yeah. would be a great resource for anybody who wanted to go back and kind of, you know, just start building up their knowledge of translated fiction if they didn't have it. Yeah. If anyone's interested, I, I would, I would cover it on the Mooks and the Gripes website and probably have a lot of those long lists published there mm-hmm. somewhere. And yeah. so if people need a, a helping hand, reach out to me and I'll point you in those directions. Yeah. Uh, books, you know, books that came out, now because they started in 2008 that was 15 years ago uh hard to believe yeah Yeah. there's so many great ones from back then that's that's i guess another thing that i love about translated literature and the publishers that we have covered you know i love a good new book and a good author who's writing as we as we you know live and breathe but 
these books were written sometimes 100, 200 years ago in languages around the world, and we get them, you know, fresh now, and they still are powerful and relevant. And the Best Translated Book Award, one of the things I loved about it is you could have a book that was newly published in English but was one of a nation's like big pieces of literature mm. that we just didn't have the opportunity to get yet. You know, the, the year that I judged uh, Lucio Cardozo's uh, Chronicle of the Murdered House, uh, which was translated by Margaret Jill Costa and Robert Robin, Pat, Robin Patterson uh, from Portuguese one. And that's a book that was originally written in the late fifties and was a pretty big, important book in Brazilian literature. But, you know, for half a century, we didn't have it. And incidentally, it happens to be an open letter book. And I think that was the first year that they actually won um, the Best Translated Book Award. Maybe maybe in other years, you know, I think all the winners were, were worthy, but maybe the judges were also a little bit like, well, we probably can't give it to the sponsor but um, <laughs> but at any rate we we didn't have any qualms and uh, and gave it to uh, chronicle of the murdered house and again a book that was 50 years old is new for us and I, I love that about open letter and and what they do yeah, yeah absolutely well we wanted to talk about a few favorites and maybe though before we get there Paul you should uh, introduce a special giveaway. What do you think? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. As you alluded to earlier, I mean, one of my favorite things about these publisher episodes is these generous giveaways. I mean, there's no pressure on future publishers if they decide they can't do this. But so far, every every single publisher we've worked with has been so generous to give away an entire year subscription to their catalog. So Open Letter Books, as I mentioned earlier, Every year they come out with about 10 books and I have been a long time subscriber. I, my shelves are bulging with all these great books that I've received over the years. And it's so fun. I've talked about the, the joy of seeing that package in the mailbox and kind of running home and tearing it open to see what it is. I mean, I'm so excited for whoever gets an opportunity to win this because it's just absolutely wonderful. You never know. They're, they're such a diverse publisher and so creative. And I just really appreciate, you know, every month you literally don't know where, which part of the world it will come from, which language. It's so exciting. So yeah, they've agreed. Chad and Kai have agreed to, to share a, a year subscription. So we're wow. going to do that. And um, Chad, or Chad, I'm going to call you Chad now. Um, Trevor, do you <laughs> want to touch on like what the criteria are for this yes. time? Yes. So as, as they've been in the past, here's what I want listeners to do. This is no simple, just send me an email that uh, tells me you want to join. You got to do two things in this email. The first thing, I want you to put uh, an open letter book uh, backlisted title that is either your favorite, or if you haven't read uh, an open letter book yet, if this is your first time learning about them, I want you to put a backlisted title that looks interesting to you that you would like to read. And the second thing that I want you to do in this email is put a forthcoming title that is coming out soon. You know, they have their website. It, it tells you what's coming out. Um, please look at that and tell me which of their forthcoming books you'd like to read. Um, hopefully this is a fun exercise because it gives you a chance to go to their website and browse a little bit. I know I, I love doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also hope that it uh, just shows some of the riches of open letter books, uh, both what they've done in the past 
uh, 15 years, as well as what they've got coming out soon, and gives us all a chance to celebrate a little bit, share some of our favorites. Uh, you know, as as I'm looking forward to it already, but we'll be sharing some of these in our next episode. You know, books that you've loved, books you most interested in, uh, books that are coming out. So the celebration of open letter books will continue into our next episode a bit, yeah. <laughs> which is which is really fun. Uh, but those two things, did that make sense? Did you, Bron, did you know what I'm asking for? Yep, you're going to make somebody work for it. That's good. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But hopefully just pleasant, pleasant oh, that's work. great. <laughs> and I was going to say, while you're browsing around on their site, looking at their backlist, I dare you not to order, you know, two or three books. Because every time yeah. I'm on there, I'm just like... <laughs> it's dangerous. <laughs> it's really dangerous. And like you said, I mean, it's what, 15 years. I mean, no matter how much I've read and how many I've bought, I always manage to stumble on something. Like, oh boy, I'd forgotten about that or I didn't know about that one. So yeah, it should be a fun, a fun treasure hunt for people. And I don't think they've got something like this going on now, but every once in a while they spend a weekend where it's like, put, uh, you know, put three of our books in the cart and we'll, I mean, they, they practically feel like they give them away to you when, when you, you put them all in the cart, the regular price, but you get there to check out, yeah. poof, they're discounted <laughs> significantly um, for a day or two. You know, I, I've, yeah. I just think that they, they, you know, th- there may be some benefits to their setup, but they, their interest is genuinely to get books in readers' hands, mm-hmm. and that shows with their their generosity in so many ways of, of sponsoring all of these things, but also in just really trying to make even their own books accessible um, and and available at, at good prices. So yeah, absolutely. so yeah, uh, Paul, you're supposed to dare them to buy something, not to to not buy something. By the way, <laughs> I was trying reverse psychology. <laughs> there you go. I got you. I uh, yes, I hear you. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's celebrate a few of our favorites uh, that are coming up. Um, why don't we do it this way, Ron? We'll start with you. You share one with us. You don't have to go into into great depth. You can share passages or not. But I just can't wait to hear and to discuss a little bit amongst our, ourselves some of our favorite books. Our choices won't overlap listeners because we did share, you know, in general where we were, we were leading and purposefully tried to go different directions in the forest. But mm-hmm. I think that we'll all be delighted by each other's picks. So Ron, yeah. do you, do you want to get us rolling? Sure. I'll start off. I'll be happy to. And this is uh, uh, one of the benefits of uh, sort of the Twitter world is, uh, is if somebody sees your interest and they say, Oh, you really need to read fill in the mm-hmm. blank. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is how I first came upon uh, an author, an Argentinian author by the name of Juan Jose Serre, who has, I think, six uh, publications uh, from uh, Open Letter. But the, the one I picked, which is my uh, favorite and first, and I think that often happens, you know, when you discover somebody, that first one is just, and then everyone you're used to the style. But anyway, so mine was uh, La Grande, which is actually his um, last book unfinished uh when he, he had uh lung cancer over six years and so uh and there's there's a famous last line in the book but that his books all take place although he moved to paris in the uh, 60s in uh the santa fe region in central uh northern argentina uh which is where he's from um in this book and uh and uh, there was a better just summary of it but eric mb uh becker from Words Without Borders did a review of it, uh, which is also a great resource for translated fiction. But as he describes it, the the action opens with Nula, 
a 29-year-old womanizer who sells wine and writing is writing a book on ontology. Uh, and he meets up with Gutierrez, who's just returned from Spain after 30 years. And part of the theme is, what was he doing? Why did he leave? Um, uh, and so it ties in with uh, the dirty war, which you often see either directly referenced or not in Argentinian fiction, and including this one. Uh, and one of the things I liked about it is, as I mentioned, going back to the, the things I liked, is it gives you a real sense of place. And part of the philosophical underpinning, if you will, is, uh, as Eric describes it in his uh, summary, is it's there's, at the time in Argentina, there was a, a precisionism. It was a conservative literary movement where everything was very precise and orderly. So uh, the way that Sayre deals with that is going in a completely different direction. So he's got very long, winding, sinewy sentences that will go on for a page or two. Um, and he also, the philosophy is that he's studying, going through here as this Gutierrez brings it to uh, Nula, is this idea of accidental becoming. So he's writing a book on what what's becoming. And it's the... and. I've one uh, brief excerpt that that um, shows both. And this is not I won't read the whole sentence, but a part of the sentence that goes into this um, is he's talking about he was uh, as a kid loved uh, to investigate butterflies. So he says that he at this point, he uh, stopped visiting the town, the memory of those groups of butterflies with their uncanny synchronicity without his knowing neither how nor why, began to represent the image and the proof even of a harmonious rational universe, which contradicted his conception of a constant and accidental becoming in which, owing to the perpetual collision of things in the space-time cocktail shaken alone and ceaselessly without the help of any barman, as he often said, every event in spectacular colors, no less fleeting or provisional than the afternoon clouds happens. And so you just get this, you know, this wonderful mixture. And a lot of the book takes place in this becoming, becoming meaning just sort of this accidental events that bring two people together um, uh, as compared with the sort of the, the precisionism, if you will. Uh, and so it's just, um, I mean, I just, really enjoyed it uh, so much that I've read four of his other books. <laughs> the only one I haven't read is his book of short stories on there. Um, but it's just, uh, it's, you know, I found it delightful. And it's, um, it's one of those, you get into the sort of the unfinished because the other, it's, and I'll, I'll do it because every, it's so well uh, publicized. Um, but uh, he's, some people consider it the, uh, the best last line of a book because it, what it is is it's uh, it goes through after and so on page four ninety seven uh, the last sentence the last paragraph is with the rain came the fall and with the fall the time of the wine um, and that was going to be the beginning of his last uh, chapter when he died but that's uh, uh, that's so that remains the last sentence. Uh, and it's just a great way to sort of uh, to capture it all. Um, and another interesting thing about him is when you go through, it's sort of like uh, Javier Marias, he'll bring back characters. So the group, because it's a barbecue, he's getting all these people to a barbecue on the last day. 
Um, and it goes about how he goes back and sees his friends that he knew from 30 years ago, as well as Nula and his group of friends. So they all get together uh, for the, uh, the barbecue that's the conclusion of the book. Um, and so you just get, and some of them appear in others of his works. Uh, and so you get that sort of repetition, which is sort of fun is when you read his other things. So Absolutely. I just really enjoyed it. Uh, and that's comes back to what I said is that, you know, once I found the author who I'd not heard of before, you know, then I liked him enough that I, <laughs> I read everything except his book of short stories. It's a great oh, sign. Always a good sign. And I love the, you know, it's a, it's a perfect example of an author that they, they have I don't, uh, supported maybe the wrong word, uh, you know, uh, but they have continued to support us as readers of that author uh, to bring out his books so that you can, you can read a book of his that is incomplete and still feel that sense of this is the work of a lifetime. And you can see all of it, how it interplays. And uh, he, he's a, a great example of that. I, I do love the uh, Sayer books that, that, I've read. Um, I started with scars and I would say that's my favorite, Ron, but as you said, that's, that's just how it goes. Sometimes is your first mm-hmm. one is, is your favorite. <laughs> yeah. So. And it's the same. That's the, uh, I should mention Steve Dolph is the one that uh, translated La Grande and he also translated scores mm-hmm. and the 65 years of Washington. So the, those three, he, he translated those uh, all, all each of those. Yeah. Good, good, good. Good start. Good start. Yeah. Paul, are you going to follow it up with a, with a winner or did you choose a dumb book for your yeah. first book? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm on pretty safe footing here. Um, I think, I think it's pro- probably one of their the most... source has got to be good, right? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Can't go wrong, but I do think that this is one of their bestsellers and maybe one of their most popular books. Um, and it's Death in Spring by Merce Rotoreda, uh, translated from the Catalan by Martha Tennant. So this was actually the first book from Open Letter that I that I ever read. And it, it just hooked me right away. I knew as soon as I read this, that this was the kind of publisher that I was all about. You know, it's such a strange, strange book. Um, I saw it described some by someone as a quote sensory experience. And I think that's a very accurate way. I mean, not just for this book, a lot of their books that they publish, I could describe probably that way, but this one in particular, it's, it's very much about that idea of, of the senses. Um, it's set in a nameless town and it has a very fable-like quality in many ways. It introduces us to some of the different people who live there and these very bizarre rituals and myths and customs that take place in their village. Um, so a lot of the plot is, you know, incredibly fantastical and, and very, very violent. I'm not sure that it would work as well as it does if it wasn't for the fact that it is just absolutely gorgeously written. It's very poetic and beautiful. Um, the world that were introduced to in the village are just described in wonderful details. And it's very visceral, you know, the natural world in particular, but also the village life is just very, you feel like you're there. Um, it's narrated by a teenage boy who's, he's kind of our window into, into this village and this world. And he slowly introduces us to some of the things that are happening there and some of the different inhabitants and the rituals that they do every year. Um, I don't want to give away too much, like I said, but a lot of the power of this book is not necessarily from any plot. It's more about the language. So I feel like I can say a few things that won't ruin it for any readers. So one of the rituals that takes place on a pretty regular basis is the villagers will send a man into the river to swim this very treacherous stretch underneath the village to kind of remove rocks and help ensure that the village isn't washed away. And there's just some like 
very uh, eerie and, and kind of creepy descriptions of, of the power of the water and the darkness. And just, it's, it's very much, you know, man versus nature where, you know, that if man makes it through, it's kind of a little bit of luck and a little bit of skill kind of thing. Um, you know, there's all these other eerie kind of creepy things that are introduced. Like when the village adults go in to for parties or meetings or things like that, they'll just lock their kids in these cupboards. Sometimes they'll remember to put a hole in the door so that they can breathe. Sometimes they might forget about that, you know, so stuff like that. It's just, you, you get this kind of sinister vibe from the whole village. Um, and then I'm going to read a short passage here that touches on another ritual, which is, it forms a central part of the book and in my memories of the book. And I'm just going to kind of drop you right into it. Um, it says they started to shout. They shouted at my father who had little remaining breath and was clearly near his end. He was still alive, but only his own death kept him alive. They dragged him from the tree, laid him on the ground and began beating him. The last blows made no sound. Don't kill him, shouted the cement man. The mortar trough, filled with rose-colored cement, lay at his feet. Don't kill him before he's been filled. They pried his mouth partially open, and the cement man began to fill it, first with watery cement so it would slide down far inside him, then with thick cement. When he was well cemented, they stood him up and put him back inside the tree. They replaced the cross and left to prepare, left to prepare the festa. I stayed on alone. The tree was barely visible without the torches. I went up to it and placed my ear against the bark. It seemed empty. I looked up because I wanted to see a little starlight. As I gazed upward, I could feel my link with life snapping. I felt detached from everything. I searched for my tree. Night was a hand, wrenching me from my father's tree, leading me to mine. I knelt down and crawled on my knees from one trunk to another, fingering the names of the living and the dead. I could smell the fretted leaves and trampled grass. When I lifted a plaque, the ring sometimes squealed, as if it were tearing something that was deeply hidden, something that thrust blades of grass and leaves on branches upward. A ray of moonlight helped me locate my tree. It was directly in front of my father's. The plaque smelled of rust. I would end my days locked in that tree, my mouth full of cement that had been mixed with crimson powder, my entire soul within. Because you see, the blacksmith used to say that with the last breath, without anyone realizing, your soul flees and no one knows where it goes. So, I mean, that's, you know, only like 15, 20 pages in. Um, so a little little spoilery maybe, but it also just gives you a glimpse of both the beauty of the language, the violence and horror of it, and also just these rituals that they kind of take for granted in this village where as us, you know, readers, as, as we're looking at them, we're like, what is going on here? So yeah, anyway, it's just an amazing book. I mentioned the, you know, the two month review podcast earlier, I was listening this week to one of their older episodes about Rotorata. I would highly recommend that if anybody's interested in, in hearing a little bit more, uh, it provides some great perspective on both her life and some of her other works. And they touch a lot on the creepy, you know, descriptions of nature and vegetation in particular that take place not only in this book, but in some of her other books, you know, just the, the nature is cruel and sinister type of an idea. So again, um, not necessarily a really easy book to describe, but I couldn't recommend it more highly. It's the first one of hers that I came across to continue our theme and remains my favorite of hers that I've read so far, but there's some more that I still plan to explore. Yeah, it's it's one of those books that I remember where I was when I read it, but I can't actually mm. remember it too well. I, I Looking at my review, I read it back in 2009 when it was published. In fact, it mm-hmm. may have been one of the very last one of their hardbacks mm. uh, to come, come out. But 
I'm 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 going to have to go back to our last episode and and figure out how to fit this into a reread schedule because I I'm putting here your your, your thoughts remind me of it mm-hmm. of the kind of everything but I I also put in here this book has the most beautiful and aching account of a burial that I've ever read mm-hmm. I don't remember that right now mm-hmm. so I think I'll have to go back and. Uh, and check out Death and Spring again sooner rather than later. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I know it's one of their more well-acclaimed books, but I know that Chad in particular, when I was listening to that episode, he said something along the lines of, even though this one is one of our best sellers and it gets a lot of acclaim, in my opinion, it could never get enough acclaim or something, you know, roughly like yeah. that. I know that he's a huge champion of it and feels like it should be listed, you know, kind of among the all-time greats of literature. And I mean... After having revisited it a little bit, I'm I'm inclined to reread it as well because it it drew me right back in. Have you read that one, Ron? Yes, yes, and that's she's another author that's uh, you know we've talked about the support because I would have a difficult time to pick between that and Camellia Street, um, mm. which I also really liked of hers. And uh, a, again, just going back to a sense of place, it's just amazing and and a, mm-hmm. a culture that I would not otherwise be exposed to. And that's, mm-hmm. I find fascinating. So yeah, I, I really enjoyed that one. Yeah. As a matter of fact, <laughs> since we were giving some indication of where we might be headed here today, I, I scratched that off. <laughs> so <laughs> I stole it from you. Sorry. That's, that's the way it's, it goes. And that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I wonder if either of you um, have read, any of their, you know, another author that they've published several books for, uh, I think three or four, Antoine Volodin, um, mm. the French author. The book that I want to bring up is his book, Radiant Terminus, translated from the French by Jeffrey Zuckerman. Ah. It's it's so bizarre. Is there any open letter book that you couldn't say that about, though? <laughs> I, was, I was about to say that. I think that that could just be like our standing comment for most right. of these. Yeah. Well, I I loved this one. It's it's science fiction. It kind of reminds me of uh, Tarkovsky's Stalker. I hate, right. I remember just having images of that movie playing the whole time I was reading the the story here. It's post apocalyptic Soviet Union, but the second Soviet Union has already collapsed. That's that's mm-hmm. where we're at. The first one's like a hundred or two hundred years into the past. This is the second one that has collapsed. Uh, you know, there's radiation poisoning everywhere. And the book starts with a few characters. Uh, We we get introduced to them. And here's one. I just think this, the imagery and the writing is so lovely too, but it says with his too hot and too long felt coat, ill suited to the weather, his two big boots and his head shorn of hair that wouldn't grow again. Cronauer looks like many of us. I mean that at first glance he looks like a corpse or a soldier from the Civil War running away without having won a single victory, an exhausted and suspicious-looking and strung-out man. Uh, This is one of the characters that we meet here. Um, There are kind of three, if I remember right, that that we meet at the beginning. There, of course, are plenty of others, but these are folks trying to recover after uh, a catastrophic uh, event. And uh, one of them goes on to become the leader of the commune that eventually everyone wants to overthrow. It's very sci-fi in many ways, but again, it's, it's, I I, I find it so pleasant to read some of these kind of bizarre stories where sometimes I have no idea what's going on, but I (laughs) love the language. I love 
your ability to just capture me by words and escort me through this this story is just fantastic. Uh, but yeah, I I thought it, this is the book that made me think. Oh, okay, I've been hearing about Valadin as a great writer. Uh, I need to read all of his books now, mm. but I still haven't. I, I got to admit, <laughs> I've only read this one still, but it this just makes me excited to get back to that old goal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I've read one of his and enjoyed it. And he's just going back to, I mean, I would pick it up just because Jeffrey Zuckerman was the translator too. Right. It's a name I've heard, but he's such a great translator that I use that as, you know, sort of a criterion. So <laughs> I almost, said, with what you said, it's on my list. <laughs> I, I almost put that as uh, when I was talking about Radiant Terminus, that one of the other cool things about following these publishers is you you start to learn which translators translate books that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, uh, Jeffrey Zuckerman is is one of those that's kind of like, oh, did he translate another book? Well, I got to look into it at the very least, if not rush out to, to read it, because I I like what he picks or, you know, what he what he translates. But I, I really love the his his way of getting these crisp, precise, but still somehow lush sentences um, out onto the page. I, I think he does fantastic work for, for these books as well. Yeah. But all right. Well, Ron, back, back to you. What's your second back, book? Cycle back around the, the next one, since I always seem to pick long books, this is a shorter one. Um, but one, and going back to your last uh, uh, podcast, uh, I've not only read this one now twice, but three times because I read it in preparation for today. And it's the Translator's Bride. Uh, and it's a short one, so I could do it. <laughs> but uh, and uh, Hal Zhao uh, Reese, R-E-I-S. Um, and he actually he is a translator. Uh, and so he translated this book himself uh, into English. Um, and it's. Uh, it's just a lovely book. It's a it's a curmudgeonly, you know, youngish guy. It's usually don't have a curmudgeon as young uh, as he is. But and it also uh, echoed. And that's uh, when you were talking about hotels or rooming houses, because one of the it's interesting how on each reread, something different comes out. Last time I had remembered activities at the rooming house where he's uh, he's there's the landlady and two other occupants and how they interact and uh uh, but it's uh, so the whole it's his story as his as you can tell the translator's bride uh, his his fiance leaves him in the first uh, page first couple pages and so the book is him as a translator trying to get by day to day to get enough money but his whole goal was to get enough money to uh, buy a house ultimately to try and get his uh, fiance um, back again, uh, and I'll I'll get to this and it's a, a section of the book about that that gives you some because he always he also likes these long sentences so I'm not going to read the whole sentence but here's a part <laughs> of it. Uh, he says I'll get her back after buying the yellow house. It could be painted pink. It will be my greatest offer and my goddess will descend and keep me company hence allowing me to worship her day and night, silently, for not to disturb this divinity. She's the only one rising above us. My daydream didn't mean a fear of falling. It was, in fact, a warning to renounce fighting. Wallowing in mud, manure, 
uh, each reaching the top where Helena hovers with butterfly wings. That must be the explanation. My mind still has a few moments of clarity. Despite the unwelcoming circumstances, I fight in with all my strength and the house will be mine. I'm going to work in order to achieve my goals and will never be apart again. Uh, and you get a sense, though, that this he's he hates every he's making snide remarks about every other character, except when he's talking with them. He's like very delightful to them. But and so you just get this curmudgeon. You get a sense for why she may have left him. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's this. So the whole book is about and it's a short one. It's about trying to get her back and the dream of, of getting her back so that they can be reunited. And it's got just I'm not going to. It's got a lovely ending uh, as to how it uh, it goes. But part of it, which is fun, is um, there's a couple of books when translators write fiction. Uh, is this, I don't know if you've read the Translator's Revenge is another one, or even Jennifer Croft has now written fiction. And you get a sense mm-hmm. for what it must be like. But what he's talking about is one of the things he's talking about is he's horrified because somebody has... Um, uh, he has translated a book years ago that is now going to come out. And so part of the fight is to get paid for what he had done like 20 years before, but he picked up uh, the, the, the fellow who picked it up. He had learned that uh, uh, Mr. Sharshowski had done a translator and he says uh, he didn't even read the book. He wanted to change all occurrences of quote snow to rain and replace all references to lakes with references to rivers, because according to him, the reasoners from his blessed country aren't familiar with such realities. What can I say? (laughs) And so this this whole process of translating, you know, what is it, you know, do you want to acclimate it to the reader or do you want to give them a sense for what life's really like in in the place they're writing about? Um, So I just, uh, uh, I really enjoyed it. And it's one of those, you know, I know you in the last session you were talked about rereading, but one of the interesting things for me to the rereading of this book um, was it, it it was an amazing synchronicity because it turns out he translates a lot of Scandinavian writers. And one of the writers that he really likes is uh, Newt Hampson. Mm-hmm. And I just read The Hunger, mm-hmm. uh, like literally two weeks before. And this last rereading, which I never would have known before, I see a lot of there's like a couple tropes of Hampson's that are like built in, like uh, uh, like just the, the fact that you have a penurious writer trying to figure out how to get by day to day who's generous. Uh, I mean, in Hampson and the hunger, he, he'll like give a 10 pound note to somebody, even though that's the only 10 pounds he has. And in this book there he buys he's got like very little money. But every time he passes by a little girl, he buys an orange from her and puts it in his pocket um, and looking up to a church tower to to see what time it is. And I just read those things in Hunger and he sort of implants them uh, in his book. So it was a perfect timing for the rereading. And you guys are encouraging me to do more rereading. But I think that's another thing is not only does life change or my experience level, but what I've read in the interim changes Mm -hmm. and that pulls out something that I would not have seen otherwise. Yeah, that's fascinating. All the conversations between books that you don't even know are there. And yeah, that's wonderful. I have not read that one. one Yeah, me too. As you can say, I have to read that one too. Mm -hmm. Sounds wonderful though. Well, I guess. Yeah, that's good. (laughs) Never a bad thing. 
Um, well, I'll go ahead and kick off the next one. So four by four by Sarah Mesa translated from the Spanish by another one of my favorite translators and probably you guys too, Katie Whitmore. Um, of the three books that I'm bringing up today, this is probably the one that comes closest to being plot driven, I guess, maybe a little bit, <laughs> although I'd say that's still a bit of a stretch. Um, this is very much a boarding school novel. And speaking of rereads, I actually reread it this past week um, and I was surprised. It's funny what you just said, Ron, because it was the same type of thing where a book that I've read in the interim since the last time I read it popped out to me in a way that I didn't expect. And that was Trevor, Our Lady of the Nile by Scholastique Mukasonga. Um, this whole idea of a, of a boarding school novel, but in particular, explorations of the powerful and the powerless, outsiders versus the people who belong in a place, and kind of the sinister side of some of these institutions in which we put our trust. So all those things kind of popped up and, and reminded me of the Mukasanga book when I reread this. So uh, four by four, it's set in Spain in what appears to be kind of maybe an alternate reality where there's a lot of civil unrest that's taking place within the country. And so it focuses a lot on that idea of how during times of turmoil and political strife and war and things like that, schools can, in theory at least, create a kind of a refuge or an oasis for the children and some of the people who are there. But then it quickly gets into the reality, which is often that they don't provide all of the solace that you would think. And there's actually, you know, plenty of violence and upheaval that take place within, you know, the schools themselves. So this is a book that's gothic in a lot of ways, you know, kind of like maybe Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier or something like that, where you're in the you're, you're seeing it from the perspective of somebody who is kind of being introduced into this situation where they don't know entirely what's going on. And so therefore you're in the same boat. Um, so there's, there's mysteries and secrets throughout this whole book, missing students, missing teachers. Um, there's a character in particular who we are first introduced to where we don't really get a lot of perspective about what's going on with her, but she is clearly an outsider. You know, she doesn't belong. This is a school for, well-off and, and rich children. And she's called what's they refer to as a special. So it's kind of like a scholarship student. So from the very beginning, she is an outsider who's kind of looked down upon. Um, so that's kind of our introduction to the book. But there's an excerpt later in the book where somebody's talking about a novel that he claims to be writing. And I almost feel like it's Sarah Mesa talking a little bit about her own book. So I was just going to read that real quickly. It says, he's describing this book and he says, a mystery about rules that are established, but never completely defined. The stranger doesn't know them. He can't come to terms with them, even if he wanted to. But he can't fight them either. The rules exist. They're strong, unquestionable, but they're not written anywhere. Therefore, they can't be obeyed or disobeyed. And I felt like that is kind of what you feel like here. There's these rules. They're very clearly, you know, they've been around for a long time, but you don't necessarily know what they are. So you're stumbling your way through it. Um, so the book is divided into three sections, and the first part of the book is broken into tiny chunks, only a page or two, where we're given a number of different perspectives and points of view. And as we get these little dribs and drabs, kind of the cumulative effect of it all is that we get information very slowly and in a very fragmented manner. And so, again, I keep saying this, but you really don't know entirely what's going on um, through big parts of it. But, um, you know, I was going to read another excerpt, but I probably won't. But I'll just say that the, the writing itself is very there's the three different sections and they're all very different styles of writing um but there's a gothic feel throughout and kind of just the sinister element that's lurking in the background there's cctv cameras there's barbed wire fences 
surveillance, you know, some of these relationships between the teachers and the principal, where you can tell that everything's not above board. And as we go along, we do learn more and more about that. Um, so it definitely propels you along. I remember reading this in our backyard, laying in the hammock, and it was just like, you know, tearing through it. It's very much a page turner. So um, like I said, I, I could go on and on and read more excerpts, but I know that, you know, in the interest of time, I better skip it this time. But I would just say that, um, yeah, it, it is very propulsive and I don't know if plot driven is the right way to say it, but it's a, it's a page turner for sure. So I would highly recommend it. Yeah, I, I haven't I, read. I, I love yeah. that book too. So, yeah, I love because then there's a couple. You know, was when I was younger, all the books would be about male boarding schools, mm-hmm. and there's there's some great ones. This I think is the best. I mean, I absolutely love it. But I think uh, uh, with Jawbone and mm-hmm. there's some others that come out, and, and it's just it's incredible. And Sarah Mesa is is another incredible author. So I'm, it's a great selection. Yeah, Ooh. absolutely. Trevor, right. another one to All add right. to your list, right? Yep, exactly. <laughs> I'm already doing it. All right. Well, over the last few years, we have heard a lot about Rodrigo Fresan's uh, the Remembered Trilogy, uh, and rightly so. But probably my favorite of his books that I've read so far is The Bottom of the Sky, which was also translated uh, from Spanish by Will Vanderheiden. But I love this little uh, sci-fi book that is, it kind of took me back to my childhood a little bit. It's like um, a couple of boys who are excited about science fiction and want to dedicate their lives to figuring out how to go to distant planets and distant times and all of these things. But it's just magical. It, there's there's a a whimsy to that aspect of it, but it's whimsiness that is also... Uh, kind of couched in their desire to escape uh, some things that you would, you would want to escape. You know, there's, there's the hope for something out there that is better than what they have in, in, in their own lives. And I, I just, again, think that it's one of these books that is written so well that sometimes I'm, I realize I'm not paying attention to what I'm reading so much as (laughs) what it sounds like and, and, Mm -hmm. and all of that. Um, here's here's just a very short section that it begins with. The first part is called um, This Planet. It says, find yourself wherever you find yourself, near or far. If you can read what I now write, please remember. Remember me. Remember us like this. Mm. And then you turn the page. <laughs> Remember us, remember me, remember that in those days the inhabitants of our planet, of our tiny universe, were divided into interstellar travelers and creatures from other worlds. And it's like this beautiful thing is all of a sudden kind of transformed, not into something not beautiful, but something more sci-fi, you know, and, 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 and all of that. And it's like, okay, okay. It says the rest were just secondary characters, the anonymous builders of the rocket, or men and women enslaved by distant creatures of impossible anatomy that, nevertheless, a great mystery, always spoke our language perfectly. Or humans who practiced an extraterrestrial tongue that, an even greater mystery, was so similar to the English spoken by a foreigner of a not-too-distant country. And I'm like, okay, you're playing with me. This is like <laughs> you know, a Star Trek episode or something <laughs> like that. But again, in such a whimsical, fun way that um, it, this is one where I remember... I remember it came in the mail and I thought, oh, I'll, t- I'll take it. Uh, I'm going somewhere. I'll just, I'll just 
see what it sounds like and just kept on reading, you know, wherever mm-hmm. <laughs> it didn't stop after that. Um, and it's, it's a standalone, so you don't have to, you know, dedicate your and to, to a whole trilogy. If you want to get to know the work of Rodrigo Fresan and it's fairly short, it's a uh, 266 pages and uh, lots of fun. I, I, I do always like how Chad puts this kind of stuff on his books. I never know how much of it is is just bombastic uh, fun that he's playing with us, but it, a Kurt Vonnegut novel told by David Lynch filtered <laughs> through the madness of Philip K. Dick. <laughs> wow. I mean, I mean, this is the guy who put a quote from Thomas Pynchon on the cover of one of his books that I don't think Thomas Pynchon ever said. <laughs> you know, just because that, that's how he can, you know, that's how he has fun selling these things. Um, That's awesome. but, uh, but yes, this one was just a lot of, a lot of fun, again, a, a sci-fi, but that really is reflective as well uh, about the, the here and now as, you know, I think a lot of good sci-fi, uh, does. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. For San, it's just, I mean, reading his, it's like sparks. There's these like sparks of energy and, uh-huh. and he's, i <laughs> He's a great to listen back on a backlog of a TMR is the interview with him for one of the trilogies. I mean, that guy's just he's he's one of those people that has the quickest synapses as far as, you know, something will he'll start thinking about something else. And uh, he's a he's a character. Yeah. But, but you, you did talk about rereading at different times, you know, and the, the books that you read in between. This was the first Frisson I read. And you notice how he starts. With remember, I mean, how many times did I repeat the word remember in mm-hmm. that beginning? And it, it, you know, it resonated with me, but even more so now with the the remembered part, you know, and, and the, right. those books about memory and such. Mm. So it's time for a reread. So, I know. <laughs> All right. Well, Ron, what's your, what's your third and, and final one? Third and final one is Giseldome. Uh, Guillermo Sacamano. I was hoping this was the one when you said you had a GS author. I love yes. this book. <laughs> uh, and I, I saved it uh, um, uh, as my favorite of, of these three. Just It's one of those, I mean, I've read it probably five or six years ago, and I'm not good about remembering plots, but I will remember generally that I like something. But I remember more about this, having read it five or six years ago, uh, than than most books, um, and it's because it's a it's fascinating. I mean, the Gisell Dome, uh, the the author Sakamano uh, lived in uh, lives in uh, Villa uh, Gesell Gesell uh, accent on the second syllable, uh, which is a place on the uh, it's like about four and a half hours down the uh, Rio de la Plata from Buenos Aires. So there's actually a place there. That's where he was. And it, it's un, the, it turns out the Gazelle, it's not the founder of the town, but it was a child psychologist in the 50s and the 60s who built these things called Gazelle domes that was actually a trans, you could see through translucent dome that would have children that he was observing on one side the observer on the other side with a one-way mirror on the interim and the, in the, in between so that the observers could see the kids without the kids knowing they were there. Uh, and so the way he applies that trope to this book is he, he's the observe, somebody's observing, 
uh, all the the uh, the characters who live in Villa Gazelle. Uh, and it's there's I think it's supposed to be about 50,000. You meet at least a thousand people in the book. So it really moves from you get to see all the characters that I just the uh, Chad wrote about it when he first I can't read the whole review because it's not this. There may be kids here, but, <laughs> uh, but he says it's a book told in fragments with a single story stretched over its pages. It's interrupted by the great the, the newspaper guy is Dante. Uh, and so you go through him, first person reflections, ads for a number of self-help and other groups. Uh, and it's just, it's, so it's fragments built in with the different characters. So you may just get like a paragraph, uh, for each of them. And it's intertextual because one of the, the, uh, characters is the, the fellow who puts out a, a weekly newspaper. So you'll get like what's going on in the city for him. It's, a do trigger warning. It's brutal. I mean, it starts out with, uh, uh, the first two events that drive the book, uh, are, uh, rampant child abuse at a local school, Catholic school, uh, and, uh, uh, young teen, pregnant teen who kills herself. Um, so it's, you've got it. I sort of, it's, to me, it's a precursor of hurricane season. Uh, in that it's it's brutal, but it's it's so well done in my view uh, that it's you know it's it, it, what he says at one point he's he's a very political writer as he says if you get if you have a concentration camp in your country you can't look the other way uh, and so he very much gets into that but uh, um, and but a, a sort of uh, the writerly part of it which gives you a some sense because he's also the, his sentence structure is really unique as, as far as where he, you know, sort of moves things around. But one of the passages is, uh, yesterday, uh, like every morning I went walking on the beach with my German shepherd. Suddenly the dog, uh, charged after a butterfly, the butterfly fluttered, provoking him. The dog chased it and barked at it. A gust of wind carried the butterfly off and the dog stood there with his tongue panting. Still, then still, not defeated, he gave one more bark. I had a sudden insight. The butterfly was the novel, and I was the dog. Oh, wow. <laughs> just, so, you know, and it's just, but he, he goes into all these characters. And one of the things I, as a sort of a, a coda for, for this is, uh, there's a great, which we could all appreciate, is it says, uh, uh, it's the, the, the Dante, the newspaper guy, says, all I have is books. Those who have books have no money. So, <laughs> that sounds familiar. Uh, but it's just uh it's it's delightful i think paul you were the one that was talking about war and peace that you had to sort of plot out the characters mm -hmm. this is very similar uh in that you really get to see everybody and it starts out because the and it's very part of his political leaning is he's he's strident anti-capitalist and so what he's got built into this is the town, there's a lot of Nazis there because Argentina accepted Nazis. And so a Nazi found a town and you've got one guy who's like mowing down all the uh, trees uh, to develop it. You've got somebody else who's building the twin towers, uh, despite the ecological disaster that it's going to cause. You've got the the Kennedys or the or the or the uh, the group that goes around that sort of controls things. You've got the mafia characters, you've got drug runners. So it's, it's populated with 
uh, an incredible assortment of characters. And one of the other features of it that I really like and have seen at some other books since is it's a, it's a vacation town. So like, so it's, this is what happens in the 10 months when you don't have the 2 million visitors there, you know, it's a, it's a city of like 50,000 and they, in the summer, you, they get between a million and 2 million uh, folks there. Uh, and so you also get it. I've, as I said, I've seen in other books, what happens to a tourist town in the off season mm. as they get ready for the influx. Um, but, uh, and as I said, he's a stride and I, I read some review or something that said he was actually, he was at a book fair and the, the whole beginning of his dialogue was a stride and anti-capitalist speech. So, and it really sort of builds in with, with, uh, uh, the themes and the characters. Uh, and I just found it fascinating. And it's, it's, it's one of those that, you know, especially it's not, well, it's another lengthy one. Uh, it's like 600, a little over 600 pages that you need to get into the rhythm. And so, uh, and I was confident enough that I get there that I did. And then you, cause it's so unique to have just these fragments telling about people, as I said, war and peace, like with so many different characters, but I really enjoyed it. Yeah. It sounds wonderful. I've had it for a long time and have not read it, but it's going to move to the top of my pile now. And, and you already had me, but then you had to mention hurricane season. That yeah. was like the I cherry on top. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know me well. Yeah, absolutely. And he's written for sure for shorter. Um, uh, I really like seventy seven uh, and the clerk, uh, and they're shorter. And seventy seven goes back to I didn't. One of the reasons I didn't put it on was it's uh, it's another one that uh, gets into the uh, thirty war, mm. uh, but a fascinating take on it. So those are shorter ones to sort of as entrees to see if you like the author. Yeah, that's great. I'll be honest. This is another one of those where I started it not knowing how far I would get, but just wanting to get a taste and just devoured it, just loved it. Mm. So I think you'll get a taste pretty quick if you, if you look into it, Paul. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I definitely will. All right. Well, my last book is the incompletes by Sergio Chafek. Um, This is an author that I know you, you brought up. Was it on our last episode or a couple episodes ago, Trevor, but it wasn't this particular book, but this one was translated from the Spanish by Heather Cleary. And I don't know if I did myself any favors here because I think I've saved the hardest one to describe for last. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I might cheat a little and and borrow some, you know, from a couple different reviews, but um, on world literature today, someone wrote, it would be difficult and hardly productive or even reasonable to tell, describe, or film a novel by Sergio Chafek simply because in his case, the telling is no less important and meaningful than the tale and typically inseparable from it. And the telling, i.e. the writing, must be read in order to be fully comprehended and appreciated. In Chafek's case, it should be read silently and ruminatively in order to sample this master's exquisite, multi-layered prose style. And I thought that was just a great way to introduce this book, and I would assume probably his other books as well. But as the reviewer said, it's it's all about the writing and the language. Um, it's funny because my I'll show you my copy. It's absolutely loaded for such a thin book. I mean, I have tabs everywhere. I've underlining like crazy. And then when I go to like figure out what I'm going to say, I'm like, oh boy, uh, I don't know how I'm going to even begin to describe this. So clearly, it made a huge impression, but it's in a way that's really hard to describe, as so often happens with a book that you really love. But 
I guess to focus on what little plot there is, it's it's told by a narrator who is ostensibly telling the story of his friend Felix, who is, quote, not missing, but simply absent, having years before decided to leave his country and survive in the world like a wandering planet. So that's kind of how the book starts out is, is we get this idea that we're going to get, you know, a tale about Felix. But despite this promise to describe what's actually happening, what we really get is kind of this meandering you know, these descriptions of what may or may not be happening in Felix's life. A lot of it is just happening in the imagination of the narrator because he doesn't hear from him very often. And what he does here is in the form of these little fragmented postcards most of the time. And so, you know, rather than concrete details, we kind of get the narrator's, I guess it's like his reconstruction of what he imagines is happening to Felix. So a big chunk of, of the book takes place in this kind of derelict hotel that's on the outskirts of Moscow. Um, I saw somebody use the word limbo when they were talking about the book. And I think that's a really good description, both of what you feel like is the reader, but also kind of the characters themselves. They're always in between and wandering, but they're never quite reaching any concrete destination. You know, it's, it's very much this feeling. It has like a ghost like feeling to it. Um, we're following Felix around and he's kind of wandering through the city and through the hotel and through vacant lots and things like that. And then we're later introduced to a woman named Masha, who is the kind of the sole employee there at the hotel. And like I said, it's kind of like as we're following them around, it feels like we're following ghosts through kind of the ruins of this old hotel. It's really fascinating. So clearly this is not a book that I would necessarily recommend for anybody who needs a strong plot because you won't get that here. But for those of us who are fans of just beautiful language and wonderful descriptions, you know, this ticks every box as I showed you with all of my tabs. So I'll just read a short excerpt because this is one of those where it's not going to really give you any taste for what's happening, but it's just more a matter of, of the language itself. So I'll just drop you. And this is Masha, who is that employee at the hotel said she had noticed earlier the confusion that the oversized staircase produced in Felix. Then his breathing had quickened as they climbed the stairs, a sign of impatience or perplexity, she thought, but certainly not of exhaustion. She could feel his breath on the back of her neck and behind her ears, cold despite his proximity, and those pronounced when they found themselves on the same step, him following close behind her. Masha thought of her nighttime attire, the layers of thick woolen clothing she slept in, one irregular garment over another, which were meant to protect a nucleus, namely her body, but which also had the predictable effect of relegating it to the depths by giving it another form. Many of these garments had lost all utility, beyond providing nocturnal warmth. Years of use and gradual misshaping had left them completely unintelligible and only able to cover the given body part when combined with other articles of clothing in the same condition. Though each individual garment was undefinable, this clothing was Masha's most intimate possession, not as much for its nocturnal use as for the way it concealed and, let's say, deformed her body. She knew Felix had thought something of the kind and could not fathom how. The banal intuition that flourished in the hotel Perhaps it was the ominous mood there, which was exasperatingly consistent and proliferated in infinite details from the smallest and best hidden to the biggest and most obvious, and which came together in solidarity to produce a standard set of impressions among the guests. Based on her experience, Masha understood it was the power of the Hotel Salgado to induce shared ideas, outstripping the intelligence and, of course, the will of the individual, and that Felix's recent thought was proof of this. So again, it's it's mm. just such fascinating book. And that idea of kind of a shared memory or shared experiences, I think really ties into, like I said, most of what we're being told in this book, 
may not even be happening. It's just the narrator's kind of shared view of what might be happening. And so it's just a very eerie and, and strange book, but man, it's just so fascinating. Um, I, I thought it was wonderful. So I'll just close real quickly with there's an NPR review that said, just like you must accept dream logic when you're sleeping, you must accept the incompletes for what it is. To allow the endless descriptions of rooms, city streets, broken televisions, the cold peeling walls and dirty window panes to take hold of you. In the end, you'll stumble out of the book a bit dazed, wondering what the hell you just read, but it's an enjoyable trick. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, um, I don't know. Have either one of you, I know you've read some books by him, Trevor. Have you read that one or? I've yeah. read that one. Actually, I, I, was, I was just recalling the conversation Mark Haber and I had after we both finished that a couple of months ago. And about mm. all we could say is, wow. <laughs> exactly. I could so have been well, a lot quicker with my review. It's so well written, though. And I, I've read one of his others. And actually, I like those two so much. I'm looking over at my table there. And I just, uh, The Planets was just delivered about uh, a week ago. Mm. Uh, so that's on the mm. list. He's just another incredible writer that you could go get several of them from Open Letter. Yeah, yeah four of them, four of them. And I, I love each of them. And there's even one, I can't remember what it was called, uh, came out a, a few years ago from a different publisher. I'll, I'll follow up on that and post it in the newsletter just for people who are wanting to know, because it was, it was also very good. Mm-hmm. Um, but all right, so I, I have a hard out here in just a few minutes. So I do want to go through my uh, final one fairly quickly and get to some of the ones that we still want to read. Um, but the, I'm going to call a little bit of an audible here. Um, Dubrovko Greshik died yesterday. We just mm-hmm. found out. Um, significant for Open Letter for many reasons. You know, the first book the, uh, that they published was Nobody's Home by her. And they have since published in total um, seven of her, no- of her books. I said novels, but most of them are not novels. In fact, I think only one is. Most of them are collections of essays that are very insightful, very much about the literary life, but also about culture around the world. Um, She's got a great wit and she's not afraid to use it (laughs) Mm. to kind of take down some of our favorite institutions and such. Um, But you two had said that you've both read her novel that they published Fox Mm -hmm. and it's such a great book. It's it's relatively short, 300 pages or so. I guess it, it maybe that's a little bit long in some ways, or at least normal. But I, I remember it just kind of speeds through it. Mm-hmm. I, I felt you just, you just are lulled into her. It's like she's sitting down and just having a conversation with you. Um, this is a, a novel, but it's still kind of centered on many of her fascinations with uh, the writerly life. And um, in particular, where where stories come from, but uh, the way that she kind of gets to that is that our lives are so strange and random and stories can pop up everywhere uh, if you're paying attention and such, but um, she starts it. This is the start of a novel. How do stories come to be written? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, this is, this is sure footing here. (laughs) I'm sure many writers ask themselves the question, though most avoid the answer. Why? Maybe it's because they don't know what they'd say, or maybe it's because they're afraid they'll end up sounding like the doctor who uses her, who only uses Latin terms with his patients, the ranks of whom are, admittedly, ever thinner, wanting to parade his superiority, when was that ever in doubt, and keep them in an inferior position, one they can't escape even if they wanted to. 
Maybe this explains why writers prefer to shrug their shoulders, leaving readers with the belief that stories grow like weeds. And perhaps that's for the better, because if you collected the many thoughts writers have ventured on how stories come to be written, you'd end up with an anthology of inanities. And the more obvious the inanity, the more acolytes the writer wins. Take the global literary star who babbles on about how his moment of creative epiphany arrived during a baseball game. As the ball flew through the air, at that very moment, he realized he was to write a novel. (laughs) I think I know who she's talking about. Uh, So when he got home, he sat down at his desk, took pen in hand, and he's never looked back. (laughs) This is very much um, how I feel like all of her books are. They're just... You just sit down and she's in control and she takes you through it. Uh, but this particular novel, again, it, it can it has splashes of various lives and various writers and various mm-hmm. things. And and it transforms consistently, I think, deliberately because the, the fox of the title is like a mythological fox that is, is, is capable of transforming. Mm-hmm. And so much fun. Um, I think we're really going to miss her voice out there in the world. I know that open letter, uh, you know, the, the sense that I've gotten is that they knew her quite well and considered her a friend, uh, beyond just some, you know, some author that they, they wanted to publish. And so I think it would just, I just wanted to make sure that we touched on her and her, her work, uh, kind of always maybe in the conversation for a Nobel prize, uh, one that would probably be well deserved, uh, not to happen now. They only award to people who are living. Um, but it doesn't mean we can't go out and enjoy her her books. Um, and from, from various publishers, uh, one of my favorites uh, wasn't published by Open Letter Books. It was published uh, years ago by New Directions. You know, mm-hmm. this is how these things kind of flow together. <laughs> right. But it's the Museum of Unconditional Surrender. Um, and I should say that... Uh, Ellen Elias uh, Bersach and David Williams translated Fox from the Croatian and the Museum of Unconditional Surrender is translated by Celia Hawksworth. Um, again, just uh, uh, powerful novel. This is one of her other novels um, and not one of her collections of, of essays, but I recommend all of them. Um, mm. I haven't read all of them, but I recommend all of them. <laughs> uh, it was a fantastic audible because I think it's emblematic of what open letter does. I mean, cause she was, if I think they said the first, if not the, certainly one of the first and they've got how many, six or seven and they became friends and they supported. And what I've, after reading Fox and one of her others, a, a poet described a, a great work of art as something where you could see a, an intelligent mind at work. And I think that's really what you see in her books. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's fascinating to follow. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. You know, I, I sometimes think I talk about that as the author's in control, but it's that it's that you want to surrender it to the author and just hear what they have to say and how they're going to get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, Fox is wonderful. And, and this was one of those unfortunate times where the death of an author kind of prompts me to, to why, what, what am I waiting for to read the rest of her works? Cause I've had the age of skin in particular, you know, for a year or two now since it came out and I look forward to continuing to explore, you know, everything that she has to offer and really sad that, that this happened, but um, very lucky to have all of these wonderful works to go back and, and enjoy. Maybe we should do something, Paul, uh, uh, and pick a few of her essays mm. and just uh, 
you know, maybe begin a few of our episodes that are upcoming with just a brief discussion of a few of her essays that we, we read together. Cause that, that's a way to do this briefly, but get you in it. Yeah. Um, and so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll carry that on offline. I think it's yeah. a worthwhile pursuit. So. I love that. All right. Well, we're going to have to do this quickly again. My apologies. My kids, I'll tell you. They've, okay. they've got stuff. <laughs> got to have priorities. They've got stuff. Um, yeah. But what are a couple of books that are that you have not read from Open Letter that you're looking forward to reading? And uh, you can even just, I, I'll, I'll start because I, I don't know anything much about them, but I have been really excited to read Not Even Dead by Juan Gomez Barsin. It's coming out soon, translated by Katie Whitmore, which we've, we've talked mm. about her work. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen the, the cover looks fun and exciting. I've read the premise. They're giving away arcs on Twitter. Maybe that giveaway is over. It certainly will be by the time this episode comes out, but you know, I, I am excited about that one. Um, that's forthcoming, but, but one that I've regrettably not read that I've always thought, Oh, I'm, that's going to be my next one. I mean, for a decade now, it seems, fact probably doesn't just seem it probably has been a decade is Terza by Arnon Grunberg uh, mm-hmm. translated from the Dutch by Sam Garrett do you guys do you guys read uh, Michael Orkthefer's the complete review and such the literary mm-hmm. saloon he's he had been excited about Terza for so long and then it's coming out and I got it and I'm gonna read it and I still haven't read ah. it <laughs> I'm familiar with that uh, cycle yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, too well. <laughs> have either of you read uh, Tersa? I have oh. not. All right. Well, sorry, Michael. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll get to it. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Ron, do you want to go? Yeah, I just, I'll, I'll be quick. Uh, since uh, Ninth Building just was on the international booker list, mm. uh, so that's one that had not been but is now on uh, my list. Uh, another one I want to read is that I've, seen all over the place and haven't purchased it yet, but is the Pachinko Parlor, mm. Alyssa Shua Dusapin. Uh, I read Writer uh, Winter and Sachko and really liked it. Uh, and so between the reviews and just having enjoyed the first one, uh, that's, and, and then an author that I have been meaning to read and have not yet, and there's two books uh, uh, from uh, Open Letter, is and I'm going to butcher the name, so excuse me. <laughs> ha Song Nan, South yeah. Korean writer, uh, and his Bluebeard's first life, first wife, excuse me, and Flowers of Mold. Mm-hmm. So that's and I because I really enjoy writers, particularly women writers from that area of the world. So I need to uh, uh, break into those. So those are the ones that just sort of the four that popped up most immediately. Those are great. I've I read Pachinko Parlor just recently, and that was actually the only one of hers I've read, but it's wonderful. And then I've read a couple of the stories from Flowers of Mold. Um, so yeah, you're in good hands there. You're going to enjoy both of those for sure. So two of the, the books that I'll mention are ones that are older books from them and ones that I've owned forever, <laughs> recurring theme here that I have not yet read. But one is Maidenhair by Mikhail Shishkin, translated from the Russian by Marian Schwartz. Um, I don't know a whole lot about it, except that it's highly praised by a lot of people that I trust. Um, In the description, it says it's an instant classic of Russian literature, bravely takes on the eternal questions of truth and fiction, of time and timelessness, of love and war, of death and the word. So, hey, I mean, what's not to like about that, right? Um, And then the second one is The Physics of Sorrow by Georgi Mm -hmm. Gospodinov, translated from the Bulgarian by Angela Rodell. And that one... um, 
again, I, I only know what I've read on the description, but using the myth of the Minotaur as its organizing image, the narrator um, constructs a labyrinth of stories about his family, jumping from era to era and viewpoint to viewpoint, exploring the mindsets and trappings of Eastern Europeans. So, you know, that yeah. just sounds wonderful to me. That just to, to spoil what was going to be my pick before calling the audible there, it was uh, the physics of sorrow. Oh yeah. I, I love Great. that book. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So yeah. So it sounds glad wonderful. it still came up. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Well, it's so nice to talk with you both about open letter. My apologies for having to, you know, I, we, we need to do this when we just have the whole day in front of us. And I know. I always wonder I if we, we didn't have a deadline. Us. Like, yeah, how long could we actually talk? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I just wanted to, before we leave, just encourage people, you know, be sure to take care of, take advantage of this giveaway. It is such a wonderful mm-hmm. opportunity. Mm-hmm. So generous of Open Letter to supply it. And as hopefully you've gotten a taste from this episode. I mean, there's just a wealth of riches and exciting worlds to explore out there. And this would be a great introduction to to them for whoever wins. And Ron, thanks so much for joining us. They're a great guest for so many reasons. Just yes. we love interacting with you online on Twitter. Uh, we've appreciated your interactions with us, but clearly a big fan of open letter books and a knowledgeable resource. So we've been spoiled. Uh, no, I truly appreciate the opportunity. This has been so much fun. I don't know what I'm going to do the rest of the day, but it's, <laughs> it's been a joy. So I really appreciate the opportunity to talk with you guys. Yeah. All Anybody right. who doesn't follow Ron, I would just put in a quick plug. You should follow him. He, his book recommendations and his thoughts on translated literature are wonderful. And, and I enjoy so much our interactions together, Ron. So thanks for joining us. <laughs> All thanks right. so much again. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can find Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month, helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time.